Hey there, NRL 22 fans. Uh, today's episode is one that I've been excited to do for a while, uh, mostly because it involves me doing this in my pajamas in the comfort of my own home. Um, so today I've got with me Justin Carbone, um, who most of you know is my significant other uh, mm -hmm. slash partner, as well as co-owner of Midwest Precision Shooting, and most recently won the PRS Rimfire Finale National Championship down in Texas. So I felt like this is as good a time as any to get him on the show. Um, there's a lot of things that Justin has shared with me over the years that I have shared with all of you. Uh, and I've always been kind of excited to get him on the show so I could pick his brain and kind of give you guys a little glimpse into some of the things I've been exposed to uh, having him in my corner. So Justin, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and tell our listeners who don't know you how long you've been shooting and you know a few other details? Hey guys, how's it going? I'm Justin Carbone. Um, I'm a shooter slash match director and just, I guess, tinkerer and thinker about all things precision, rifle, and mostly rimfire these days. But um, I guess my journey kind of got started. Um, I was working at Federal Ammunition for about 21 years and probably six or seven years ago, I got started shooting precision rifle. Um, at that time, it was centerfire. Um, and kind of like early on in the process, the rimfire, the NRL 22 thing kind of kicked off and I just, you know, I had a gun sitting in my gun safe. It was an on shoots 22 and I'm like, Hey, that might work pretty good. So grabbed it out of the gun safe threw a loophole, second focal plane scope on there and went to a match and it was just lights out on fire. It was awesome. And I was just loving it and I was hooked. So just kept shooting it. And then. Ruth and I met each other in 2019 and she kind of came with to a couple matches and she fell in love with it as well. And we've kind of just been uh, doing it ever since, shooting a lot of matches. We host the monthly matches at a local club of ours and then we started hosting the X matches in 2020. So I think we've got like five of those under our belt now and it's going really good and we've learned a lot of things along the way. and. We have a lot of ideas and hopes and a lot of things that we're looking forward to doing in the future here. Thanks, Justin. Uh, so one of the things that was Justin's brainchild that he dragged me along with was our monster match, the night match. Um, so as a match director, uh, Justin definitely thinks holistically about the matches, but also in very, very deep detail. Uh, so it's something that I appreciate because I prefer to stay at the higher level, um, but you know the the specific details always bring a little added element to the to the matches. So you know target failures, um, thinking up different ways to avoid that, and things of that nature. Um, Justin's always really good at, which is helpful for people like me who are a little less scientific. Yeah, I guess my whole life I've been told by my friends that I quote unquote overanalyze things and. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, even my my boss told me that I just tend to get in the weeds with things, but I guess that's just kind of how I am. Um, I was an engineer before um, I parted ways with Federal, and so that's just kind of the way my brain works. And I think like this whole sport really does favor that type of thinking. So when it comes to you know working together with Ruth as a team, we do a really good job of um, you know having a diverse set of skills where I can kind of get get into the weeds on things and think about things from a super technical standpoint and Ruth can kind of stay a little higher level and, and better at keeping um, 
keeping things realistic and working with other people and things like that. So yeah, we complement each other well. For sure. So elaborate a little bit more for the listeners on how you feel like your engineering brain benefits you as a competitor. So yeah, I guess um, this whole sport, um, the skill set required to do well is kind of a combination of you've got technical problem solving, you've got um, the ability to perform physically, I suppose, right? And then there's a lot of mental aspect to it as well. You know, you need to, we all know what we need to do to execute a series of shots. We just have to do that, right? So, but as far as the technical problem solving part, I mean, a lot of it is just like engineering problem solving. You know, you've got the physics of the bullet, you know, traveling through the air, you've got wind and different factors that it's just like a problem to solve. So it's, you could look at it as like a scientist or from a math standpoint, and that's kind of, kind of, um, you know, like right in the wheelhouse of the engineer brain, I guess. I'm just really glad I get to benefit from your analysis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I'll be uh, sitting there and Ruth will be like, hello, are you there? You know, because I'm like deep in thought or something. And she's like, hey, the RO is telling us about this stage. Do you want to know about this? Or <laughs> So yeah, it definitely does have its pitfalls as well. So yeah, so that's that's a good, good point that you bring up and something that I wanted to ask about just because our audience is full of experienced shooters, but also a lot of people brand new to the sport. So for someone like you who, um, just for those who aren't familiar, the PRS Room Fire Finale uh, match was... How many? 188 shooters, I think. And yeah, it was a, so. a two-day match, 20 stages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're, you know, able to go out and compete against some of the best in the country and you come home with a win, um, you know, it's always helpful for those of us who aren't at that level to know, okay, you are human. So what are some things that you feel like you're still trying to work on or, or things that you might struggle with? Um, yeah, I guess there's a lot involved with doing well in a match um some of the things that i did well at this match ruth's talking about and i guess we did well at as a squad was just staying positive Um, we all kind of supported each other um, with just positivity we worked together well as far as you know when we'd come up to the next stage we um, did a good job of having someone range all the targets if you know, someone was always kind of watching the wind, hey, notifying everybody, hey, the wind's kind of changing directions. So we just did a good job with that. But um, I'm always trying to work on, I guess, there's like a stage process. So there's a series of steps that I try to make sure that I cover for every single stage. You know, that's like preparing for the stage, um, making sure that I understand it, that I've like, you know, checked all the boxes in my checklist of things to like touch on my gun or to move or to set. And then there's like the whole mental aspect. Um, I guess one thing that I'm always trying to do better at is visualizing the stage. So ideally in a perfect world before, you know, when you're on deck or when you're in the hole, before you go, you will have basically visualized yourself shooting the entire stage. Um, If you can do that, and I'm talking like visualizing every step, including like where you're looking, you know, where is your left foot, you know, what, how are you turning the knobs or what target are you looking at? So like in a perfect world, if you could visualize like every single step, when it comes down to actually shooting the stage, it'll be like you've done it before. So 
Visualizing is huge, but it requires a lot of discipline. I mean, the, the natural tendency is to not want to do it just because it requires work. But if you can start doing that, it'll really help you on stages. But other than that, I guess it's always a constant, um, you know, focus on improving on like self-image. You know, what are you thinking about during a match? Are you thinking about, you know, like, like you want to you want to try to think about the pro the the process at hand. You know, you don't want to think about the result. You just want to you know process is primary, um, and then self image. Just thinking of yourself as the type of person who can win. So yeah, all these things are something you know things that I'm always trying to work on. Yeah. So I'm gonna get into a couple of those things that you mentioned. Um, in a minute here, but I just want to step back for one second and talk about this visualizing because it's something that when I started to do it, um, I'm going to say when I first started out, I wasn't capable of doing it effectively because there was just too many details, too many things going on, too many things for me to try to remember. And it was really difficult for me to imagine myself doing things that I was struggling remembering to do in the first place. So cheat sheets and things like that and starting slow was helpful, but you know, it really upped my game once I started to actually do the visualizing step. So you know, for me, um, the first thing that I do, and I think this is also true for you, but correct me if I'm wrong, when I get up to a new stage, I, as close to the shooting position as possible, I make eye contact both through optics and with my naked eye with every target. And then I, I you know, have read the course of fire at this point, so I'm looking potentially at my course of fire and at the targets at the same time so that I start to ingrain in my head what the shooting order is. And I do that from as close to the shooting position as possible because that's going to be where I'm at when I'm on the clock. So if I do it off to the right, 15 feet, it's going to look completely different. All my reference points are not helpful then when I get on the clock. So that's step one for me, and that's what I'd probably recommend people start with. And then after that point is you can walk away from the stage or move to the side, and then you can start doing the visualization because you've already have the mental picture of what the targets are going to look like as you're doing it. At least that's how, how I do it. Is that similar for you or different? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, that is, I mean, in a perfect world during this visualization process, you would be laying in the same spot, like what Ruth is saying. But I mean, getting a, a view of the targets from the shooter's perspective is like one of the super important checkpoints or on the checklist. So, but yeah, and then as far as visualization comes in, yeah, if you could do it from that same spot or from that same perspective, that would be ideal. Absolutely. But um, a little bit about visualizing kind of in general. Um, I'm sure you guys have all heard about this. It's visualization is key for like any type of performance. You know, it's there's been studies that have been done, for example, like on like you know, shooting free throws in basketball. So like there's been studies where they've taken three groups or taken a, a group of people, divided them into three, you know, smaller groups. And they had, they wanted to see, you know, like which one of these treatments would um, improve the ability for them to shoot free throws, right? So the first group, they had them practice for, I don't know how long it was, a couple of weeks or something. They had them basically shoot free throws for a couple of weeks. And then group number two, they had them visualize shooting free throws, but they never touched a ball. And then group three, they just told them to do whatever you want, but don't shoot free throws or think about it, right? So then when it came down to it and they did the testing, obviously the first group had the best improvement because they were practicing. 
but the but the second group actually did have a noticeable improvement in shooting free throws, even though they didn't touch a ball. And then obviously the third group didn't have any improvement. So, I mean, there's science to show that visualization is important for your performance. And ideally what you'll do is you'll visualize before you do the action, then you'll do the action, and then you will visualize afterward um, the proper way to do it. So it's kind of that three-step thing. So you're saying that basically my whole method of not touching my rifle for practice is totally fine because I can just mentally. <laughs> exactly. Yep. As long as you're just imagining yourself pulling the trigger, you're good to go. All right. So stop giving me grief about not touching my rifle. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, that's, that's awesome. So um, let's talk a little bit about the finale match. Uh, what was the experience like for you? What was your favorite stage, least favorite stage, and why? Yeah, so the finale, um, it was an interesting experience. So we actually were there last year as well. It was last December. We flew down there, and it was a new range, a new group of people. So the whole thing was foreign to us. It was a good experience. Um, in that match, that was you know, the first match that we had been to where you needed points going in you know, the series points. Well, you didn't need them, but that was the way to compete in the series. So both Ruth and I had points going into that match and they actually squatted everybody based on rank. So in that match, I was in the top 10 going in. And so it was the first time I'd ever shot in such a competitive environment, you know, shooting against a bunch of good, a good shooters. And, you know, the very first stage of the match, you just felt the pressure like, oh, I better clean this one, you know? So it was a really interesting experience. I learned a lot from that match. Um, so again, last year, the PRS finale, it was a tougher match. It was, you know, there was some wind. Most of the targets were small, like maybe four tenths of a mil on average. And they were on T posts in a field with tall grass behind them. So skyline targets, essentially. So if you were not, if you were missing the target and you could not see your bullets, you're basically just guessing. So I left that match with like a 10 point list of things that I was going to do different, you know, going forward. So a super good learning experience. Um, I think the match directors, they were asking for feedback last year after that match. And I think some of the feedback was that it was a little tough, you know, like people were just saying what I said, basically, you know, because I mean, there were some people that were good shooters that would get a really low score on a stage and other ones right next to them that would get a high score. So it seemed like it was a little bit, you know, random. Um, your your chances of, of scoring points was a little bit more random when matches are like that. So anyway, um, this year they made some changes and I think the match was a little more on the easier side. So yeah, we went to Texas this year. We actually didn't have points going into this match. They opened it up to everybody else once, you know, everyone who had points had signed up. So because we didn't have points going in, we were actually squatted. We were able to squad, you know, with, with our friends or whoever we wanted to, we were not squatted based on rank. So that kind of, you know, changed the experience for us, um, as opposed to the people that were squatted based on rank. But yeah, so it was, uh, at the same place. Um, you know, the, remember the name of the range? It's like uh, Texas Precision Matches shooting complex near near Navasota, which yeah. is by College Station in Texas. 
Um, really cool place. It'll come to me as soon as we're off, Mike. <laughs> yeah, the range is basically divided up into two areas. There's their rimfire area where they hold their normal matches. And then in a different location, you know, you couldn't see it from there. Um, you had to drive to get to it. But they had their, their center fire rifle range. So there's basically 10 stages on each of those ranges. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was really good. Um, Prentice Wink and uh, Corey K, they do a good job. They're really experienced match directors. You know, they don't take a lot of risks. Everything's pretty straightforward and, and flows really well. And they have adequate bathroom facilities because I know you all are wondering. Plus, uh, they have separate porta bodies for the ladies, which is always appreciated. And they have hand washing stations outside <laughs> of the bathrooms. Yeah. yeah, really good food for lunch. It was like some tacos from a nearby restaurant, so that was awesome. But yeah, um, favorite stages. I don't know. Nothing's really coming to mind. Um, I just, I just shot. You know, it just. Like a lot of these matches, it seems like the task at hand is is pretty basic a lot of times. You just need to execute. And I just just executed and it just went well and flowed well and just kept going. But yeah, I guess nothing's jumping out at me for favorite stages. Yeah. How about you? Uh, all I have in my head is from last year because you brought it up. And for for context... The match last year completely mentally destroyed me, it felt like. Like, I hung in okay, but I got rocked by the wind down there. It was just, it was switchy. The targets were small. I felt like I was missing just off the left, and then I'd adjust, and I'd make an impact, and then I missed just off the right, and then I'd have to adjust. So I I didn't zero any stages. I only had one three, and that was my lowest score, but I had a ton of fives and sixes, and you just got eaten up by it. And... Um, so I, I had some PTSD flashback to the, uh, to the enclosed one. There was a, this large structure and then there were cutouts, um, in the, the, you know, downrange side of this big building, which you couldn't feel the wind in, but you know, when you're mentioning the, the randomness, I got a seven on that, which was a really good score, uh, for that stage. There were several guys that, that went in and got zeros or ones or twos. Um, it was a small target and you couldn't feel the wind, so you didn't know what it was doing out there. And I just happened to get on and then I just nailed the target a bunch of times, which was, you know, kind of a positive highlight for me, but also I felt like I got really lucky on that one and not like it was skill. And then I guess, uh, on some of the other stages, I just, instead of realizing that there was some bad luck involved in the wind situation, uh, you know, I, I let it get to me mentally and I swear for a couple months after that, it took me (laughs) to to crawl back. Um, but this year was much better. You know, I went down there and thought, I don't really have anything to gain or lose uh, at this match. I just want to go shoot. And I wanted to have a good two-day score because I've had some rough two days, <laughs> mm-hmm. both from being, you know, inexperienced. And then last year at this match with the wind and then uh, the last NRL 22 championship, I had appendicitis and didn't know it. So uh, I was really excited that, that I finished well on this one. I think um, for me, one of my favorite stages was the bus. Um, and I think I cost Boyd Linder a point on that because he was following me and I, I got my rights and lefts mixed up. So pro tip, if you're asking Ruth for wind calls, um, don't rely on my right and left because I get confused. <laughs> yeah, but the number of tenths she gave him was spot on. Exactly. My wind <laughs> call was perfect. You just didn't understand uh, what I was saying. So I, I guess the bus was one of my favorites. Basically, you shot through the windows of the bus 
um, one direction and then you turn 90 degrees and you could shoot out the back of the bus at this KYL rack for the last five shots. And I chose not to go prone out of the back of the bus. I just shot out one of the side windows, um, but I ended up cleaning it. So that was a, that was a fun one. That was fun. Yeah. There was another one. What was you shooting back and forth at targets? Wasn't it like G and E or something like that? Back and forth. Oh, it was G, E, and F. Yeah, that one That one I did not like as much. You didn't? <laughs> no, because I couldn't see my shots at G, so it took yeah. me three rounds to get on target because yeah. you were changing your wind angle by about 30, 40 degrees. Exactly. Yeah, G was basically right in front of the woods, so it was kind of skylined. But my first shot, I missed, but I saw the bullet, you know, coming in, and, went, and it went left, and kind of after that... You know, even though there was a lot of angle change, I guess my dope card was set up accordingly where I just saw my miss and just shifted over on my dope card to the next column over. And that just held for the rest of the stage. So, yeah, what Ruth said about when the wind is, you know, unless you have sign and you can kind of see what the wind is doing, you know, if you can't see that, it just really comes down to luck a lot of times. You know, if the wind changes on you, then hopefully you can see your miss and get back on. But if you shoot a stage and you get lucky on your first shot and you're on and you just keep with that same wind hold and the wind never changes, I mean, that's, I guess I'd call that lucky. Yeah. So I think it's important to point out that there, there is a um, variable that we can't control in the wind, right? So if it's switching while you're up and it's not switching for someone else, or if you get one of your, um, you know, first round impacts, you might gain five, six, seven points over the person who it takes three rounds for them to really zero in their their windage. But what are some ways that we can maximize or minimize the effects of the wind, I guess? Um, one of them that comes to mind right off the bat from what we're talking about is the, the measurement, um, your estimation of the angle of the wind to the target, not just wind speed, because I know most people know about wind speed, but the angle of the wind too makes a huge difference, sometimes more than a, a couple miles per hour of wind. If you mm -hmm. choose the wrong angle, you're going to be off by a lot more. Yeah, the, the direction of the wind is really important. So when you're building your dope sheet, if you can have, you know, proper wind directions, assuming the wind isn't changing directions. But right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really important that you have the direction, you know, nailed down when you're getting your wind values. And if you do that right, you know, and you build your, your columns and your rows on your, on your wind sheet, hopefully you can kind of navigate within that dope card and move, you know, right or left based on what you're learning as you're shooting. Right. So we had a, a couple of matches where we've had a, had a switchy wind, but it was really going from like nine o'clock to 10 o'clock and back to nine o'clock. Right. So in that case, building something out that's okay, well, this is for a nine o'clock wind and this is my dope, uh, my wind hold for a 10 o'clock wind. Is that something that you would build into your dope card or would you split the difference or how would you approach that? I guess, um, yeah, I would split the difference. And the way that I have done it is I would just, I guess, cheat and move, you know, in wind speed, you know, if it changes in direction. Okay. But otherwise, I don't know if anyone has any better ideas, let me know. But otherwise, it, you would need, you know, multiple dope sheets for the different wind angles. Yeah. I know you had the armband thing going for a while, so I just figured I'd <laughs> ask that question. It overwhelmed me, so I gave up on that venture, and I started, you know, going back to K Kentucky windage for a couple matches because I felt <laughs> like I was having better luck. Uh, no, but the Kestrel is a huge, hugely beneficial tool for that. 
Um, yeah, from sure. a match director standpoint, you know, switchy wind is kind of like the match director's nightmare because, you know, we do the best job possible designing the course of fire so that it is the, the proper difficulty level that we're, that we're going for. And if the day of the match, all of a sudden there's, you know, more wind than you anticipated or it's switchy or, or whatever, it can kind of change the whole, the whole stage. Um, you know, we've talked about this for a, for a long time. And one of our buddies, Jason Anderson, he owns Firefly Precision. If you didn't know, he makes a pretty cool product called the Dope Timer, where it's uh, like a really cool 3D printed timer holder that also has a flip down data card holder. But anyway, he's, you know, he's kind of made the comment in the past that, you know, everybody likes shooting in the wind. Wind is an aspect of the sport that, you know, that we want. That's kind of like what makes a good shooter. But if, if small changes in the wind that are imperceptible to the shooter, if that's going to have an effect on your score, then that's not really what we want as match directors, right? Because we want it to be a match that is is the same for everybody, right? Everybody has the same level of chance of getting hits. We don't want to see scores change because of luck, right? We want it to be based on skill. So not everyone has the same chance if they don't have the same skill, but for two shooters who have identical skill sets and are executing in an identical way, we would want them to have the same chance of hitting. Exactly. So Jason made the comment one day, he's like, how do we make this so an imperceptible change in wind does not, you know, change the likelihood of getting an impact and kind of where we went with it is like, well, you just need a bigger target, but you know, not necessarily taller. You want a wider target. So what we've done as you know, like Midwest precision shooting, we essentially came up with our own target package. And one of the things that the package has is it has wind targets. So for every target size, like for example, an inch and a half target, we have, wind targets that are also an inch and a half tall, but then they get wider. You know, there's like a one and a half times width. And then we have a two times width and a two and a half times width. So the morning of the match, we can actually look at the wind report, look at the windy app or however we want to do it. And if the wind is going to be, you know, at a higher level, whatever we decide that to be, we can literally just go out there and swap all the targets. So we tried that. Um, we did it for the first time at our monster match um, for the RO shoot the night before the match. It was, I think the wind was like 12 miles per hour or something. So we had the, the 1.5 times width targets out there. Um, but then the day of the match, the wind went to zero. So we just put the standard targets out there. But yeah, that's something that we're working on to try to solve that issue. Yeah, that's a good Good example because we we test our course of fire. Usually we do this um, the Thursday before our Saturday match, and we went out Thursday night, and it was flipping cold, guys. <laughs> and the wind was gusting between 15 and 20 miles an hour, and it was switching direction uh, on us. So we moved to the bigger wind targets, and then you know the next day the wind settled in. It was about half of what it was the night before, and then by the time the match came around, it had died off completely. So if we had tested the course of fire. With the standard size targets, we would have missed a lot more, but uh, we were able to make those adjustments. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, it was really interesting. That's the only time I've ever shot on those targets, like in a match scenario is when Ruth and I were shooting that night. And it was kind of cool to you like build this wind bracket based on what you think the wind is going to be high and low. And then you'd like look at this 
wider target and the whole bracket fits on there. So it was just kind of cool from that standpoint. Um, it was testing, you know, other things other than your ability mm -hmm. to shoot with the wind hold. Right. So there is definitely skill to be tested with reading wind, calling wind and all those things too. I think we still got a good mix of that though, because there were still misses forced on us um, that were more related to, you know, the wind conditions than mm -hmm. stability on props and things like that. So I still, you know, that's always going to be an element, um, but I do like that we're thinking about how to minimize the randomness of it. So if you're off by, if you get blown just off the edge of a target, that's more what we're trying to eliminate, more so than, you know, your wind call was a mill off. So in that case, mm -hmm. yeah, you kind of deserve to miss. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but if it, you're just getting blown off the edge by these little gusts and these micro changes in the wind, I think is more what we're trying to yeah. account for. It's a fine balance. What we don't want to have happen is, you know, that we shift to targets that are so wide that the your wind call doesn't matter anymore. So right. that's what right. we're trying to figure out now. Yep. So uh, when do you anticipate those targets will be available for people, <laughs> Justin? Good question. <laughs> uh, maybe later this year. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Our dream is that, um, you know, there would be a standardized um, process for match directors to use when when determining which target size to use so it'd be really cool that'd be like one of my dreams as if uh, the sport became a little bit more standardized in that regard yeah justin loves standardization for processes for products yeah he's definitely an engineer but it's good it's a good thing uh, speaking of engineering and being process oriented um can you talk a little bit about how you developed your winning mindset in preparation for this match um, before the match started. When did you start? What kind of tips do you have for people in helping to develop this? Yeah, so um, I guess the mental aspect of the sport got started about a year, a year and a half ago. People were talking about that book um, with winning in mind by Lanny Basham. So if you haven't um, read that book, you should do that. It's a it's a short read, but it's just got some really valuable information in it. And I'll put a link to that uh, book on Amazon in the description for those of you listening who want to reference it later. Yeah. In, in a nutshell, what, what Lanny talks about is uh, the winning mindset is comprised of, of three things. You've got your conscious thought. That's what you, know, you, you, you use to take in data or take in inputs and use to make decisions. Then you have your subconscious thought, and that's what you don't need to, to actually think about. You know, that's what the practice that you've done before the match is for. You know, the subconscious basically acts without you thinking about it. And then the third piece is your self-image. And your self-image needs to be developed. It needs to be like you to win. Otherwise, you, you can't win. Like, you can never outperform your self-image. So yeah, those are the three um, aspects of, of mental performance, and all three of those need to be developed, and they all need to be in balance. Like you can't have one that's that's much bigger than the others. So, and then Lanny also talks about like when you're at a match, you should just be focusing on the process. You shouldn't be thinking about the outcome. You shouldn't be thinking about anything other than what you have to do. You know, at, in that moment. So that's kind of where the whole um, mental management in my um, game kind of started. So I was focusing on that. And then as time was going on, I was kind of realizing that I don't think my self-image was, was fully developed because 
basically, you know, kept getting, you know, second place in a lot of matches. Yeah, I, I think you took second in the in the NRL finales, you took second, third, and then second again. Yeah. I was like, what what are the chances of that, right? <laughs> and this um NRL twenty two championship this year, I felt like, you know, I could have I could have done better in that match. So I kind of chalked it up to, you know, maybe my self image wasn't wasn't at a level of a first place person. So that's kind of what I've been focusing on um, in the last few months here. So the what I what I've been doing is there's a there's an old guy named Bob Proctor. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him, but I'm sure you've heard of the book The Secret, right? That's a that's a Bob Proctor thing. But he has a program and he talks all about like what you think about and and how you imagine yourself is what ends up becoming true. So I mean, really, it's just a self image thing. So. I've been uh, watching, there's like a YouTube video with a Bob Proctor seminar, and you can just watch that for free if you want. I'll put a link to that on as well if you send it to me. And then like, um, there's a book called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. That's like a much more scientific approach to the whole thing. Um, the guy talks a lot about quantum physics and kind of, but it's the same premise. I mean, it's it's what you think about becomes reality. So. That's kind of um, what I've been doing for the mental part of my game. And then obviously just trying to just stay, you know, present during the matches and just focus on the process and have a positive attitude and all that. I will say it felt as an outside observer who squatted with you at many matches before, including high, you know, two day long, high, highly competitive matches. You felt more relaxed at this match than you have at other matches. Nice. To me. So. Yeah. Part of. Basically, what they talk about, like the Bob Proctor seminar, I think it's called You Were Born Rich. But the premise of that whole thing is um, the first step is to think about what you want to have happen, right? And it takes a lot of work at first. You have to constantly think about it and imagine yourself the way that you want to be. And you have to believe it to be true, right? That's kind of the second step. And that's where a lot of people get hung up, right? You think about this thing you want, but then there's something inside you, like deep down in your heart, and you don't believe it to be true. So what you want to do is don't stop there. Just keep pushing on it. Just keep thinking about what you want to be true. And eventually, you will start to believe it, whether you like it or not. You cannot control like what you believe if you think about something enough times. So... Once you can kind of believe it to be true, you want to just keep thinking about it and you need to associate a positive emotion with with the image. If you can keep doing that, basically what will happen is your self image will be essentially like formed inside you. And then after that, you don't have to what they say is they say you don't have to do anything else. They say you don't have to worry about the how. All you do is focus on the what and just trust that it's going to happen. So that they, they call it trust and let God. So I guess during the match, if you can have that, that trust, then it's a lot less stressful because you have nothing to worry about. Because right. It's outside of your hands at that point. You've done everything that's within your control, so you let go of all those external variables. Exactly. And I mean, if you think of yourself as a first-place shooter and you go to a match and you follow all these steps and you don't take first place doesn't really matter because the next match you're a first place shooter. Yeah. 
And even if you don't win that one, it doesn't matter because you're still a first place shooter. Eventually it's going to happen. Yeah. So again, if you build your self image into whatever it is, a first place shooter, you have allowed yourself the possibility of winning the match. But if you're, if your self image does not think you're a first place shooter, then you cannot win the match basically. That makes sense. So for people who are just starting out in this, here's what helped me because Justin and I had many discussions about this <laughs> and how to how to approach it. And I I think I have kind of a fragile self-image at times. Um, obviously, I just talked about that match wrecking me mentally for an extended period of time. Um, but it's getting better over time. And one of the things that's helped me build up to it is I'm not necessarily, it's like me to win this match. It's like me to go down and, you know, kill all the competition and stuff like that. Um, but starting out with, it's like me to always refill my magazines after every stage. <laughs> it's like me to make good trigger pulls. It's like me to follow through. And I started picturing just smaller things and adding to that picture. It's like me to stay calm when things aren't happening. It's like me not to panic when I miss a target and I don't know where my bullet went. So as I was uh, developing my self-image, that really helped me to kind of take it step by step um, as opposed to going out and be like, it's like me to win matches when I don't, I haven't sat down and thought about all the incremental things that come together to allow someone to win a match. So for me, that was a little bit easier. Um, and now I'm getting to the point where, you know, it's a possibility. Like I could, I could finish up there, uh, which is really exciting. So. Yeah. The whole thing about like, when it comes to like goals and things, you know, there's always the debate about, well, your goal needs to be realistic, right? So, like, I don't know. I don't know what I would say about that. Like, if you were the type of person that wanted, you know, you wanted to do something, but you, like, stand no chance of doing it, I don't know. Like, don't <laughs> don't let that affect what you want. Um, I guess I don't, I don't know what to say about that. I'd say, yeah. I'd say this. I'd say make sure that you're also um, developing the right skill set in addition to the right mindset. Exactly. So you still have to have the skills. You can't just decide that, you know, yes. tomorrow I'm I'm going to compete in the gymnastics and the Olympics and I'm going to win because I have a winning mindset. Um, you know, there's obviously other steps that need to be taken. So that's what I'd say. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, like part of it is once you, you know, trust and let God, it will change your behaviors and then you'll be practicing more and thinking about it more and, and going through all the steps to make it more likely to happen. Right. That makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about this um, new thing that's happening in the Rimfire world. Uh, there's a IPRF World Championship in Italy next uh, at the end of next summer. So do you want to talk a little bit about kind of how you were tapped for, you know, sure. information and all that fun stuff? Yeah. So um, one day, a gentleman by the name of Greg Bell reached out to me and he said that, you know, he told us about this organization called the IPRF. Um, I'm sure you guys have all heard of it because there was a, you know, a big competition in France this year for the centerfire side. And he, you know, like told me that they're going to be, there's going to be a rimfire match next year. And then, you know, two years following that. So centerfire and rimfire alternate each year. But yeah, it's basically just a championship match um, for international, you know, for the world. And um, he said that they had the difficult task of coming up with a selection criteria on how they were going to go about using existing data to decide who gets to go to the match. 
So he reached out to myself, um, Greg Stewart, and Paul Dallin um, for us to just put our heads together and come up with a recommendation on a selection criteria. And basically that's what we did. Um, we spent a couple weeks thinking about it and we basically just presented them with the recommendation and then they, they essentially did use what we came up with. But um, here's kind of my interpretation of, of the selection criteria. So basically one of the challenges was you've got this big pool of people that, you know, are great shooters and want to go to this match. Um, but of that, you know, a lot of them have been shooting, you know, NRL 22 X style matches or like the NRL 22 championship. And there's other people who are, you know, more PRS people who have just shot like the PRS matches, the PRS regionals. And, and a lot of that's based on, you know, geographic. Like, for example, we didn't have a PRS club for the last two years in our area, which is why we didn't have points going to that series. Right? Exactly. So, yeah, what we kind of came up with was that, you know, the championships, like the NRL 22 championship and the PRS finale, like those are really important matches. Like we should use those to um, basically look at a person or evaluate a shooter on their performance. So we came up with using um, the shooter's top finale match and two, their top two one-day matches. So that, that combination of those three matches, that would be your score. Um, so yeah, that's uh, what's being used. And right now they're in the process of, I think most people have applied. The application window is currently open. And so the shooters are being evaluated. And I think we're supposed to hear back, what, early January here? Yeah, early to mid-January. So if you're hearing this and you didn't know about it, you need to go apply like today and maybe it's still open. Um, but by the time this gets published, it, it may, may be closed. I think it's January 6th or 7th that the window closes. Yeah, and what we don't want to have happen is that the spots don't fill up because people, you know, think like, oh, I wouldn't, you know, have a chance to, to qualify. So if you want to go, you should just apply. It takes, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Yep. You would just look at your practice score uh, match results and kind of fill out this application and email it in. Yeah, so there's a couple details I know people have, have asked about or had questions about or commented on online. And so there's two things just to mention about it. Um, one is this criteria is not going to be what's used the next round for selection. The next round, there will be predetermined matches. So everyone will know in advance that this is a, a match where you'll be submitting your score if you want to go to Worlds, right? That's exactly. accurate? Okay. Yep. So the, the only reason it was done this way this year is because there there was a compressed timeline, right? So there had so people had to come up with some criteria to go off of. So you guys were just kind of trying to choose the, the most fair and diplomatic um, option to include everybody as equally as possible. So that, that was the other reason why, you know, X matches had a requirement of 50 or more shooters. It was because there were many, many more X matches, which gave NRL shooters a lot of... Um, higher odds of being selected over PRS shooters who just maybe didn't have as many um, matches in their area or and or only had monthly matches. So the, the criteria on the PRS side was that it had to be a regional finale match so that it was um, higher stakes, higher stakes match. So that was the idea was X matches with 50 or more had more competition. PRS uh, regional finales had a more competitive environment and that was sort of the, the reason for that selection. But again, um, knowing that selection criteria had to be decided in a short period of time. 
Yep, exactly. Ruth said it perfectly. And just to kind of recap, going forward, you know, the, the process will probably be weighted on the finales. I mean, don't take my or mark my word for it, but I mean, that's probably what it's going to be. So going forward, if you want to be eligible to go, you know, in two and a half years, you should make sure to shoot the finales. So that'd be the two NRL 22 championships and the two PRS finales. Yeah. And I'm guessing that later on this year, they'll announce what the criteria will be for the future selection process. So be on the lookout for that and uh, make sure that you, you know, get the right scores. in if you want to go to, to Worlds the next round, for sure. But yeah, we're looking forward to it. We're assuming that we'll be going um, in September here, 2023. Um, it's in Italy and I don't know what to expect. So yeah, it should be a really good time. We'll we'll definitely um, report back after the match if we're both selected to go. If you get selected to go and I don't, I'm going anyway. So <laughs> nice. <laughs> but you're gonna have to pay for my plane ticket then. <laughs> so uh, so that should be a good time. Very good. Um, well, I always wrap up these podcasts with questions from our listeners, and we have a couple good ones today uh, from someone who who you're um, familiar with. I think. She's a student of yours, actually. Okay. Teresa Jurish. All right. And um, her first one, and I'm really interested in your answer to this. Uh, her first question is, what are your best tips for getting the ponytail through the back of a ball cap? Ponytail first, front first, shove the ponytail through, unsnap, gather hair, and resnap. Right, I would Justin. say I would go feet first and just pull your whole body through that <laughs> hole and then just stop at the ponytail. <laughs> Great answer. Great answer. Well, Teresa, I, I usually put my ponytail on first and I just pull it through the back of the cap when I put my hat on. So I, I kind of stick the, the hole of the hat through the end of the ponytail and just pull until it meets my head. But um, I think on a more serious note, she also wants to know uh, what your preference to shoot with ball cap and or sunglasses or not. When does it make sense and maybe not to have a cap and or glasses during competition? Yeah, this is a good one. Um, when it comes to a hat and glasses, I think there's a time and place for both. I myself don't wear sunglasses. Um, if it's windy though, especially if there's sand in the wind or if the wind is coming right at your face, pro tip here, wear safety glasses because you're gonna save your eyeballs through that match. You, your eyes won't dry out as much and your eyes just won't get sandblasted from all the sand. Um, I mean, obviously vision's so so important with what we're doing, right? We need to see targets, we need to see through the scope. If we can see bullets in flight, that's even better. So yeah, pro tip there, wear safety glasses or have them in your range bag for if it's windy. And then the cap, right? So you've got um, the sun angle can be a factor. You know, I like to wear, a, I just wear a ball cap to, to all the matches. You know, you can, you know, tip your cap to the right or the left to get the brim blocking. Unless you have a ponytail. That's right. <laughs> Another disadvantage for us? No. Just have to shave your head. Yep. All right. <laughs> but yeah, um, to block the sun is a big one. Um, I suppose if it was like raining or something to keep the rain out of your eyes. But yeah, that's how I'd use it. Yeah. I think, you know, echoing the same, the safety glasses tip is something that saved me, especially on a two-day match. So I can kind of suffer through a single day, but then my eyes are, are wrecked. I think uh, Nebraska championship a couple years ago. I ran into that and I was like, my eyes hurt so bad. I had to buy eye drops that night and just keep putting them in. So that's a huge, um, huge benefit, especially on those longer um, or two day matches. 
And then for, I, I wear a baseball hat almost every match. Um, and the, the reason I wear one is so that I'm used to having it there because, because I have a ponytail, I can't move it out of my way very easily. Um, and occasionally it does, you know, bump into your scope. Mm -hmm. So what I usually do is just purposely move it off my head by, you know, tilting my head down so that the scope just bumps it up, uh, further on my forehead. And that seems to work pretty well, but I found that it's more of an advantage than a disadvantage because it blocks uh, the sun if it's coming in from the side. And then if I wear one all the time, I don't freak out when I bump it on my scope because I, I haven't had to deal with it. I'm just used to it, and it's like second nature. I don't even remember the last time that's happened. So, Yeah, I guess that's one of my things that I do when I'm you know standing there, load and make ready. I, I grab my brim and put it where I think it needs to be. Yeah, A lot of times sense. it's just lifted up a little bit so that it's not going to be in the way. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, so Teresa also has our next set of questions. Okay. Um, Equally good. And by the way, for the rest of you listening, you need to be sending me questions. Otherwise, I'm just going to answer them for Teresa from this point on. Um, so Teresa also asked, why is Ford truck not a sponsor for matches, given how many trucks at a match are Ford F-150s? Should be part of this stats gathered at each match. How many people drive a Ford F-150? Seriously, though, how can we do better with carpooling to matches? Carpooling to matches? Um... I think we should carpool more. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent solution. Um, where she was going with this, I thought she was going to talk about prize tables. You know, I'm like, <laughs> why doesn't Ford put $20,000 on a prize table? Well, good. Go ahead and answer that one first. I think this sport needs, obviously not Ford, but somebody related, needs somebody to step up and start putting money on the prize table. Um, you know, that's kind of a thing like, if you've ever shot archery competitions, you know, I think Hoyt Bows is like known for putting a lot of money on prize tables. So I think it'd be really cool if someday we had that. Yeah, it would it would also, I think, help with the debate of, you know, people taking good prizes and then turning around and selling them versus people taking what they need. And um, I think having cash prizes for the top couple spots would help uh, the equipment then go to people who really need it. Mm -hmm. um, that's just my my two cents on it. But. Um, so back to carpooling. Carpooling. That's a tough one. Um, I will say, you know, when we travel for matches, like uh, if we fly to a match or we go like far out of state, like, uh, you know, Teresa actually was with me and a couple other ladies. We drove down to North Carolina last year. Obviously, we drove 17 hours. Um, so having four people in a minivan helped because we had more drivers. Um, it was not insanely squishy with all of our gear i'd say a big driving factor of why we don't carpool more is because the gear takes up so much space but we do also try to do that um when we fly for matches it just helps with the expense to split um housing and obviously car rentals and things like that and gas um so that's a good question uh that maybe we should all you know start thinking about especially for closer matches that are only a couple hours away because we don't even do a good job of carpooling with other people mm -hmm. for those matches yeah i mean you can save a lot of expenses doing that and airbnb it together yeah. and i think having an appropriately sized vehicle for that is important so if you have an extended cab you can fit three or four people and then you can put all the gear in the back of the truck um, if you have a minivan, you can fit all the gear in with you and your luggage with you. Like we have a Ford Edge that we take to a lot of matches and we've actually drove quite a few of them, um, up to nine or 
10 hours away with the uh, Toyota <laughs> Corolla, uh, which is quite the squishy fit for two people plus two sets of gear. Um, but I think, you know, having, having a vehicle that can fit uh, more than two people plus gear uh, would help with that. So for those of you driving all those Ford F-150s, if you have an extended cab, start talking to your buddies and, you know, start, start carpooling more. I think the minivan's the way to go. I Just think <laughs> I think it's the, the the next status symbol of choice is the minivan. Justin's <laughs> been trying to get me to drive a minivan since we met, and I flat out refused. But I fully support him driving a minivan. Just so practical. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, Justin, do you uh, do you have any you know final words of wisdom for the listeners? Think about you know people who've been doing this for a while and people who or brand new to the sport, what would you, what would you tell each of them? Um, so if you want to get better, I would say all you have to do is just be honest with yourself and just write down, like after every match, just write down the things that you need to change or work on. I mean, it could be something as similar or as simple as I need to, you know, get this little piece of gear so that I can put my bipod closer to me so that I can reach it without having to get away from my gun or, you know, I need to work on this little skill or whatever it is. If you're just constantly, you know, chipping away at those things, you're going to have no choice but to get better. It'll just happen. Good. What would you say about, um, you know, getting training, us being a, a training-based company, MPS and all? Training is very important. Um, it doesn't matter who you are or, I mean, really anyone could train you as well um, just to have a second set of eyes looking at what you're doing and making recommendations. They might see things that you're doing you didn't even know you were doing. Otherwise, if you're a new shooter, I mean, that's the best way to go from point A to point B is to have somebody that knows what they're doing tell you, hey, you should do this from the get-go. And it's just the most um, efficient way to, to get good is to seek out training. Good, so last question. What are you most looking forward to this year? Um, I guess the trip to Italy. That's going to be awesome. Um, there's going to be, looks like, hopefully a fun group of people going, and it's a new experience for me. I've never been to Europe, so that'll be awesome. And just looking forward to meeting, you know, shooters from other countries, and um, I'm looking forward to doing great in the match. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today and driving Oh, wait, I mean, walking down the stairs to, to <laughs> be on this podcast with me. But um, I really am glad that I got a chance to, you know, share with with our audience um, some of the things that you've shared with me over the years. Um, I think hopefully they find it valuable and helpful. I know I have. So thank you again for being here. And congratulations again on being uh, on winning the, the Rimfire finale match. Thank you. This month. And so. thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. So. With that, we'll end it here, everyone. Keep sharing the love.